welcome to come and let that be known. Can you imagine all the things that people could have learned from Jesus if they had just known to ask? Here's God in the flesh. Here's one who knows everything. Here's one who was through whom all things were created. And people could have approached him and asked him about those things and, and been so blessed. And yet the Bible shows us that in the last week of Jesus' life, people who were opposed to him came up and asked him some of the dumbest questions imaginable. They were always trying to trap him. They were always trying to find some way uh, to get a sound bite some way to trip him up, some way to get him to say something into an open mic that, uh, that they hoped would be blasphemous or offensive or something that they could then turn around and use against him uh, in order to discredit him with the people. One of those really dumb questions is recorded in Mark 12, verses 18 to 27, just before our reading today. It's when the Sadducees came to Jesus, and the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so they came to Jesus, and they, they sort of, you can just imagine the smugness with which they said this. They told this silly story uh, about a, a, a woman who had been married to seven brothers in succession, all right, each one of them dying. Now, I've always thought this was a silly story because I can tell you, after that third brother, the fourth one was not about to marry her, all right? <laughs> but... Here's, here's a silly hypothetical story they come up with. That this woman is married to this man, and he dies, so she marries his brother, and he dies, and on and on and on. She's married to all seven of these brothers, and then their question is, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be? And Jesus did what he always did when people ask silly questions. He just went behind it, over it, past it, and pointed them to truth, and he said, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God because if you did, you'd know that God is not the God of the dead but the God of the living and you would know that in heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Go read your Bible. But not all the questions were dumb. And the question that follows right after this one, the one that was asked by the scribe, Matthew calls him a lawyer, but that, that doesn't mean an attorney. That means an expert in the Jewish law. This man came up to Jesus, seeing that he answered the others well, and asked him a question that was a very, very good question. Which commandment is the most important of all? Of all the commandments in the law of Moses, which one is the most important of all? Now, his motive was not any better than the motives of the Sadducees. Because Matthew says that he asked him this to test him. He was trying to trip him up also. And he thought maybe this question would be the one that would cause him to trip up. But the uh, scribes and the Pharisees had identified 613 commandments in the law. 613 separate commandments, most of which, by the way, were negative, you know. And, and they wanted to know then which one of these is the most important. They debated and discussed this kind of thing among themselves all the time. And the idea seems to be that no matter what he says, he's bound to offend somebody. He's bound to get it wrong in somebody's eyes. There's got to be something to quibble with here. So I'll ask him this question about which commandment is the greatest in the law. But Jesus answered the question so well that neither the scribe nor anyone else could quibble about it or dare to ask him any questions after that. 
Jesus said, here's the greatest commandment of all. Here's the most important thing in all of the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he tied to that the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe was kind of overwhelmed. He could only reply with astonishment. He said, you are right, teacher. Loving God with everything that you have and everything that you are is more important than anything else. How could, that, how could anybody take exception to that? How could anybody differ with that? That's got to be the most important thing in the world. And yet, as we saw last Sunday in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that in the last days, and remember the last days is now. The last days included the times when Paul was living and will include all time until Jesus comes again. Paul said that in the last days, People will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What does that mean? That means that in the last days, people will be neglecting the most important thing in the world, loving God. People will not be doing the one thing that is the most important thing in all of the world. So is it any wonder that the world is as messed up as it is? Because if we don't get the foundation right, if we don't get the most important thing right, we can't possibly get the rest of it right. We can't possibly figure out how life ought to be lived day by day if we don't love God. We can't possibly know what's really important in life and what's not and what's absolutely offensive in the sight of God if we don't love God. We just can't do it. And we wring our hands and we look at the world around us and we see how it's going and we think, what in the world is the problem? And the problem is right here in what Jesus says. The problem is people don't love God. In the book of Deuteronomy, over and over and over again, Moses said to the people of Israel, here's what God wants of you. He wants you to love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. He said that over and over. You know why? Because they had been on this 40-year journey through the wilderness. They'd learned a lot of lessons, but there were a lot of things they hadn't learned yet. And Moses knew it. They were right on the verge of going into the promised land. They, they had the opportunity to make a new start. But Moses knew if they don't get this part right, nothing else is going to be right. If they don't love God and love him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, when they get into the promised land, they're just going to make a mess out of it. And so over and over he keeps telling them that this is what you've got to do. You've got to love God. I think that today we often, particularly uh, as Christians, we often get the wrong idea about what God wanted from his people Israel and maybe the wrong idea about what he wants now. Some people say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, all God wanted was obedience. He just wanted these people to be slaves. He just said, here's the law and you better do it. And, and if you don't, you're going to be punished. And, and that's it. It's just God stating the law and people doing it and, that, and that's it. 
Well, God did want the people to be obedient. But why did he want them to be obedient? Because it was for their own good. It was for their own good. Did you pick that up in the reading in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13? What does the Lord your God require of you? What is it that God really wants? Can you imagine a more important question than that? What is it that God requires of you? What does God want? And he lists five things. He says, first of all, to fear the Lord your God. You recognize that he is God, and you don't want to disobey him. You know the consequences of that. The second thing he says is to walk in all his ways. Live the way that God is laying out before you in his law. The third thing is to love him. Love him. Not just fear him. Love him. Love him. Give him first place in your heart. The fourth thing he says is to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind, all your strength. And then the fifth one, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Now, it's easy to list those as five separate things because he gives them kind of one, two, three, four, five in that verse. But look, they're not five separate things. They are all one thing. Because to love God and is to walk in his ways. And to fear God is to want to keep his commandments. And to serve God is to know who he is and, and to fear him and to want to do his will. It's all bound up together. When you love him, you serve him. When you fear him, you walk in his ways. It's not just about what we do toward God. It's also how we feel about him, and it's not just how we feel about him. It's also what we do. Unfortunately, we sometimes get opposite extremes out of that. And, and some people are saying, well, you know, I, I don't worry much about doing what God says because I just love him. I just feel so strongly toward him. I just love the Lord. I run into a lot of people who've told me that, how much they love the Lord. Then you start talking to them, well, tell me about how you love the Lord. What do you do because you love the Lord? Oh, I just, I just feel so wonderful because... No, tell me what you do because you love the Lord. And it turns out their love for the Lord hadn't changed their lives at all. On the other hand, you've got people who are meticulous about trying to do everything they believe that God wants them to do, but they don't really love Him. And so it's always a burden. And there's no joy in it. And there's no joy in their hearts. And there's no joy in their lives because they're just serving a, a master rather than loving the one who loved them. God wants us to love him. It's all part of the whole of our response to God. Loving him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And by the way, those aren't four parts of us. Some people try to dissect that and say, okay, what's the difference between loving God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? Okay, there's some different shades of meaning in there, but what's the point? You notice, by the way, Deuteronomy 6 only lists three, and Jesus makes it four. So what's the point? The point is you love God with everything you are. You love God with every part of you. You love God with your heart, with that part of you that makes decisions. You love God with all your soul. You love him with your intellect. You love him with your strength. 
Whatever it is you have in your life, you love God with it. That's the point that Jesus is getting at. David Garland wrote in his commentary on Mark that love is our inner commitment to God that is expressed in our conduct and our relationships. That's very simple, isn't it, but very profound. Loving God is our inner commitment to him that's expressed in all of our conduct and all of our relationships. The bottom line is simply this, that God wanted Israel to love him, to give him their full measure of devotion. He did not want them trying to split their love between him and the gods of Canaan. He did not want them trying to divide their hearts between the God who had brought them out of Egypt and the gods among the people about whom they were, uh, whom they were about to go in and live among. He did not want them doing that. You know, when James talks about praying and he says, you know, that a double-minded man is unstable in his all, all his ways and will receive nothing from the Lord, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about a person who occasionally has his, his doubts and his fears. He's talking about a person who can't make up his mind who God is. He's talking about a person who's trying to divide loyalties. You know, well, I, I know what God has done. I know that he's brought Israel out of bondage, and I know that he's the Redeemer, and I know he's sent his son, but, boy, the gods of this world are so appealing. If we haven't made up our minds who God is, then we can't get anything else right. And, and so God is, uh, Moses is telling the Israelites, don't try to split your love between the Lord and the gods of the nations. There can't be any divided loyalties, and there can't be for us either. Jesus said, loving him that way is the greatest of all the commandments, because if we get that one right, we get the others right too. You remember after Peter had, had denied Jesus three times. And after the resurrection, he and Jesus had a one-to-one -one meeting. And I can promise you that was the most painful moment in Peter's life. Tradition has it that Peter was later crucified, and I'll guarantee you that that crucifixion was no more painful than when he had to stand and look Jesus in the eye and what did Jesus ask him? Peter, what are you going to do now? Peter, what were you thinking? No. He said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. By the way, Peter, do you love me? And then he asked him a third time. And the Gospel of John says that Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Why did he do that? Because unless Peter loved him, and until he acknowledged that love, and until he committed himself to him in that love, he wasn't going to be able to feed his sheep. He'd never do it. And Jesus said, do you love me? That's what it's all about. That's the most important thing in all the world. So here's a question. How do you and I learn to love God? Or how do we learn to love him more? The answer, I think, is found in the letter of 1 John, chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Listen to what John writes. Now, John is writing 
to people who need to learn to love each other. But they can't do that until they know how to love God. And they can't know how to love God until they know that God loves them. So listen to this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. <clears throat> so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. What is John saying? He's saying to these people who are having trouble loving each other that it begins with loving God. And loving God begins with knowing that God loves you. And how do we know that God loves us? John says it's obvious because God sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. That's how we know that God loves us. We love because he first loved us. And then from that, we learn what love is, and then we in turn can love one another. So that is the source and the inspiration of our love for God. It is the knowledge that he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And look, it's only natural to love those who love us, isn't it? Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 46. He said, even the Gentiles love those who love him. But he says, I'm calling on you to love others. I'm calling on you to love even your enemies. But he says, anybody will love those who love them. So surely when we're convinced of what God has done for us, we will love him. So the key to loving God is to fix our minds on what God has done for us. That's how we know love. And when we do, then we will learn to love him in return. So if you want to learn to love God and to grow your love for God, it's a simple thing to do. Spend some time every day just thinking about what God has done for you. Spend some time thinking about all the goodness that is in your life and recognize that everything that is good comes from God. Your salvation in Jesus Christ comes from God. The gift of his son. The presence of his spirit dwelling within. His inspired word which guides us 
in knowing him and in knowing how to live. The church for which he died and of which we're privileged to be a part. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ that he loved so much that he gave his own life for it. Our families, the people with whom we associate, our opportunity, our ability to make a living in this world. All those things. Just spend some time thinking about what God has done for you. And then, and then go to God in prayer and thank him. Thank him for those things. And you will find yourself learning to love God more and more. When you make a habit of doing that, you will learn to love God more. And over time, you will learn to love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And that love will transform your relationship with God. It will no longer be a relationship of fear. It will no longer be a relationship where you don't want to come into God's presence, but where you long to be in his presence, where you will be walking with him as friend to friend. And the more you love God, the less you will struggle with the love of money and the love of self and the love of pleasure. Those three things that Paul says, that unholy trinity, it characterizes the last days. I learned a number of years ago to appreciate John Rickey's prayers for one particular reason. That's because he almost always says when he leads the church in prayer, Father, we love you. And that really sticks out in my mind. Father, we love you. How often do we tell God that we love him? It's a simple thing. But it's profound. We need to say it more. We say it in our songs, don't we? we? We sing that we love God. But in our prayers personally, do we tell God that we love him? I love you and I thank you for all you have done for me. And the more that you do that, the more you will find yourself loving God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And there's not anything in all this world more important than that. Let's stand together and sing.